0: the conclusion of that masterpiece of a chapter, Alma 13, we get to see what we've been seeing ever since we met the people of Ammonihah back in chapter 8. Hardened hearts and softened hearts juxtaposed to give us a chance to recognize who's going to receive the greater portion and who will receive the lesser portion of the word. We get to pick which side we're going to join. Well, in Alma chapter 14, as soon as Alma is finished with this powerful, moving call to repent. Verse one says that after he had made an end of speaking unto the people, many of them did believe on his words and began to repent and to search the scriptures. Remember he told them, you got the scriptures before you, you want to rest them, go ahead. You want to do some twistification, be my guest. And yet the faithful here are saying, oh, I don't want to rest them. I don't want to twist them. I want to search them. I want to see what you've been teaching me there on the page for myself. I want to understand and go even deeper. I want to repent. I want to begin to. I love that there's that word. It doesn't just say, and they repented. They began to repent. It can take a while, especially when the life of sin that precedes that repentance has been pretty deep. But this is the turning point for the people of Ammonihah, at least these people of Ammonihah. So often in what we studied last week, Amulek would give this amazing message and it wouldn't work. And then Alma would give this incredible second witness and it wouldn't do anything. And just over and over, they're trying, 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 chipping away at these hardened hearts and they're still receiving the lesser portion of the word until they know nothing concerning his mysteries. Well, some softening must have occurred. And finally we get a group of people who believe, who begin to repent, who turn to the scriptures for additional light, the greater portion until they know the mysteries of God in full. However, verse two, the more part of them didn't. That was a minority of the people of Ammonihah. The majority wanted to destroy Alma and Amulek. They were angry with Alma. Why? Because he was so clear what are the lawyers have been so good at? Smoke and mirrors, confusing the issues, muddying the waters. Maintain enough ambiguity, enough possible interpretations. We can get darkness to look like light and light to look like darkness. It's what Isaiah warned about. Sweet for bitter and bitter for sweet and light for dark and dark for light and good for evil and evil for good. Well, nobody's better at that than people like Zeezrom and his crafty, conniving, expert in the devices of the devil, lawyer craft kinds of people. Plainness just cuts through it all. Sharper than a two-edged sword to the dividing asunder of joint and marrow. That's what God's word does. Verse three, they were also angry with Alma and Amulek because they testified so plainly, there it is again, against their wickedness. What do they do? They sought to put them away privily. Compare that. Alma and Amulek will do their things plainly, whereas the wicked will do their things privily. Alma and Amulek have nothing to hide. Their adversaries have everything to keep hidden. So in four, they bind them with strong cords. Some interesting poetic parallel here compared to the chains of death, the cords of hell that Alma described back in chapter 12, spiritual ignorance, willful ignorance. Well, those who truly wear those bands are now putting bands upon those who are free. Now, they want to make sure the majority is on their side. So in verse five, they witness against them. They testify and trump up these charges. The the lawyers and the judges do all that. And they do it all before the chief judge of the land, which interestingly would have been one of Alma the Younger's inferiors, subordinates, if he had kept the position of chief judge over all the land. Now, here's where it gets even more interesting. Verse one, we saw a softening, a change of heart. Verse six, we see the more astonishing one. And it comes from Zeezrom himself. His heart must have been pricked. In verse six, he is astonished at the words which had been spoken. Astonished? You were the one that planted those words just a couple chapters ago. What do you mean you're surprised? Surprised that people actually bought the lies that you sold them? I think it's so interesting that sometimes we think, oh, I'm not really affecting anybody. I mean, when we want to take credit for things, it's of course, of course, like this amazing influence that I have. I'm such a leader, so, so charismatic. But as soon as we start recognizing, wait a minute, some bad things could happen here, then it's wash our hands it and say, well, I, 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 who am I? They wouldn't listen to me? They're, they made up their own mind. I don't have anything to do with this. Did you really not think your actions would hurt anyone? You're behind all of this. You let out in planting these lies just a couple of chapters ago, but something has changed within him. Now he recognizes that those were lying words, that there are consequences to his wicked actions, that he's planted evil seeds that are now bearing evil fruit and he does not want this harvest. Now six continues. He knew concerning the blindness of the minds, which he had caused Yes, Zeezrom, you're behind this. You caused it by your lying words. And with this recognition, this is the beginning of godly sorrow. His soul began to be harrowed up. Alma himself will use that word. Under a consciousness of his own guilt, yea, he began to be encircled about by the pains of hell. He'd been encircled about by the chains of hell for quite some time. They just hadn't been painful to him because he'd been past feeling. Now that his heart is softened, those chains really begin to hurt. The calluses that protected him from those chafing chains are gone now. At least they're beginning to soften, like I said. And so it's the pains of hell that he's feeling. He does his best to try to reverse course, although it's too late in this instance. In seven, he cries unto the people. He says, I am guilty. These men are spotless before God. He begins to plead for them from that time forth. This is probably the first court case that this expert lawyer actually took seriously. He was pleading for the life of someone. Lawyer for the defense when just a chapter before he had been lawyer for the prosecution. Unfortunately, The judge and jury were not as quick to change sides. They reviled him. They said, art thou possessed with the devil? They spat on him just like they'd spat on Alma a few chapters ago. They cast him out from among them, just like they would have cast out Alma before. And along with him, they cast out all who believed in the words which had been spoken by Alma and Amulek. They cast them out and sent men to cast stones at them. And ask Stephen about that this is a death threat, not just chucking rocks. It's so interesting what Zeezrom's doing here and what he's probably recognizing. They believed me when I said that these men were guilty so that we could come across as innocent. But now that I've seen it clearly and I'm trying to help them do likewise, now that I'm showing them that we are the guilty ones and Alma and Amulek are the innocent ones, they won't believe a word I say. I wonder if this dawned on him. Maybe they weren't listening to me after all. Maybe it was the natural man that they'd been listening to. But since I had sided with the natural man within them, of course they sided with me. It was easier on the ears. What have I done? Now that I'm trying to introduce some hard sayings, they'll never be accepted by a hardened heart. Well, casting them out in verse seven and sending men to stone them was bad, but verse eight is even worse because they brought their wives and children together. So these must have been the men that perhaps had followed Alma and Amulek and Zeezrom and the others to the judgment seat in hopes of defending them, protecting them perhaps. It was all these men that were cast out with a threat of being stoned. Meanwhile, their wives and children are brought together whosoever believed or had been taught to believe in the word of God. And what did they do? They caused that they should be cast into the fire. They brought forth their records, which contain the Holy Scriptures. They cast them into the fire too, that they might be burned and destroyed by fire. This is one of the most horrific moments in the Book of Mormon. This is Abinadi's experience expanded. This is the cry of martyrs. At a higher pitch, women, children cast into the flames with the scriptures that brought them there is the intent of their persecutors. It's both belief and believers, it's both faith and its source that have to go. I wonder about this. Do we have the courage and the conviction? to follow the scriptures wherever they take us. Here, the scriptures were being consumed in the fire, as were those who chose to follow the word of God. In fact, that word, the word, as one of the titles of Jesus Christ, will we go where the word leads us? That makes this entire group of women and children, the Book of Mormon equivalents of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego thrown into the fiery furnace. And yet, who did they meet there? Those three were met by a fourth that was like unto the Son of God. Now that group of Hebrew men were delivered from the flames. These women and children, the faithful few in Ammonihah, were delivered by the flames into the hands of a loving God, whom they had come to know. When John Taylor wrote about Joseph and Hiram's martyrdom, he said that the Book of Mormon and the Doctrine and Covenants cost the best blood of the 19th century. Well, here we see the cost of belief in God's word. And it was the best blood in the city of Ammonihah. Alma and Amulek, meanwhile, verse 9, not cast out with the male believers, nor cast into the fire, like the female and young children believers. Rather, carried forth to the place of martyrdom, for so it was, that they might witness the destruction that they had caused. At least that's what these wicked lawyers and the wicked chief judge are hoping. Now notice 10 and 11, two very different reactions to this horrific scene that is taking place before them. In verse 10, Amulek sees the pains of the women and children who are consuming in the fire. And he also was pained and says to Alma, how can we witness this awful scene? How can we stand here and not do anything? Let us stretch forth our hands, exercise the power of God which is in us. The power you just talked about one chapter ago, Alma, will use it. Why else has God given it to us if we're not going to do anything to save these people? And yet Alma responds in verse 11, I can't. And it's not because I don't have the power. It's because I don't have the permission. It's not that I'm not able. It's that I'm not allowed. This is the order of the Son, not mine. He's in charge. It's His authority. It's His power. I do His bidding. And His Spirit constraineth me that I must not stretch forth mine hand. The Lord receiveth him up unto Himself in glory. He doth suffer that they may do this thing, that the people may do this thing unto them according to the hardness of their hearts, that the judgments which he shall exercise upon them in his wrath may be just. The blood of the innocent shall stand as a witness against them. Yea, it cries mightily against them at the last day. It's amazing what he said there. He suffers this to happen. I love that word. Yes, to suffer can mean to allow. He allows it to happen. But knowing what Jesus did in Gethsemane to suffer with us, he doth suffer these things to happen. Every time the Lord allows hard things to happen to us, he is bringing those things upon himself as well, that he might know how to succor us according to our afflictions. Taking both definitions of that term, I think, is essential. He suffers things to happen, and he suffers with us as a result. Thus, when Amulek in 10 was pained in seeing the pains of the women and children, Jesus shares that same atoning empathy. They are pained together. They suffer together. He feels our pain. He suffers alongside us. But also notice who has one response and who has the other? And if we can allow both Alma and Amulek to become three-dimensional beings, we'll see why they each had this very different reaction. Where was Amulek from? He was from Ammonihah. He was a man of no small reputation. He had many kindreds and friends. He was rich industry. In that kind of an ancient culture, that would have been a lot of interpersonal actions. I imagine that Amulek probably knew all those women and all those children. They were his neighbors and friends. He recognized faces in those flames and just wanted to help them. Meanwhile, Alma, who of course wanted to help them as well. Do you think he was thinking back to his father's conversion story? where another righteous believer was not delivered from the flames, but was instead received up to God in glory. This isn't just two people not seeing eye to eye. This is two companions with very different backgrounds and life experiences, seeing something horrific in front of them and seeing it through the lens of their own experience. Well, accepting Alma's leadership in this Amulek relents, but says to Alma in verse 12, what if they burn us too? As far as they know, there are no survivors. There is no righteous soul left. The last thing they've seen of the men was them running with stone wielding enemies behind them. And all of the women and children now consumed in the flame. Alma's response in 13, courageous as always. The one who speedily turned around and ran right back into the lion's den once the angel said, give Ammonihah another chance. He simply says, be it according to the will of the Lord. But again, like Abinadi, our work is not finished. Therefore, they burn us not. Now, as this martyrdom comes to its close, the chief judge comes. Again, someone who formerly would have looked to Alma as his superior, instead looks down upon Alma and Amulek. They are bound. He smites them with his hand upon their cheeks and says, after what you've seen, will you preach again unto this people that they shall be cast into a lake of fire and brimstone? You see why we burned them, Alma and Amulek? We took a page from your playbook. You warned us that the consequences of our sin would be to suffer in a lake of fire and brimstone. Well, you just got to see what that looks like. You still want to threaten us with the same thing? there's a little poetic irony for you. Verse 15, you had no power to save them. Oh, do not mistake lack of permission for lack of power. God hasn't saved them either. Well, do not mistake salvation from physical death for salvation from spiritual death. They were saved from the one death that is truly scary. Again, the judge smites them and says, what say ye for yourselves? And in 17, they don't have anything to say for themselves. They answer him, nothing. He smites them again and sends them to prison. Three days later, he pulls them out and questions them again, and they still answer him, nothing. 19, he asks them, why don't you answer the words of this people? Don't you understand I have power to deliver you up? And again, they answer him, nothing, in spite of his commands that they speak. This is so similar to Jesus Christ's final moments when he refuses to acknowledge or address Herod, even in the face of Herod's questions. Both Herod and Pilate, it's the same kind of conversation. Don't you realize I have the power to destroy you or free you? And what's the Lord's response? You have neither power, but I have both it is I that is going as a lamb to the slaughter. You have no power over my life or my death. I have power over both. Elder Hales once said that sometimes that is the highest evidence of Christian courage, not to answer at all. Well, there's one other detail here. Back in verse 16, it describes the judge and by association, most likely the lawyers, that they were after the order and faith of Nehor. And in verse 18, it adds the phrase, they were of the profession of Nehor. Interesting, those three words. And we met Nehor back in Alma chapter one, this soft peddling, easygoing universalist who's introducing priestcraft by the sword. Well, as short as was his moment on the screen back in Alma one, his shadow extends for a long time throughout the Book of Mormon. And he has an order and a faith and a profession. It's interesting that on the heels of chapter 13, with all of this talk about the order of the Son of God, well, the enemy has an order too. All of Alma's work to try to establish faith in God. Well, Nehor has a faith as well. Alma and Amulek professing the truths of the gospel, while those of Nehor professing things of their own. All these followers of Nehor want is what Nehor wanted from the beginning. Power and popularity and prosperity, all at the expense of the people. And the plainness of Alma and Amulek are threatening that. The presence of the true, always endangers the presence of the counterfeit. The comparison just becomes too clear. So again, in verse 20, they come forth, they smite them again. Many end up doing this. And then they ask, if you have such great power, why do you not deliver yourselves? Again, this is Jesus at the crucifixion. He saved others. Himself, he cannot save. You realize that that statement, ironically, is true? in order for him to save others. Himself, he could not save. Well, here, similarly, do you have power to deliver yourself? You obviously didn't have power to deliver others, but you claim to. Well, use it on yourself, but that's never what the priesthood is for. Verse 21, they're gnashing their teeth upon them. They're spitting upon them. They're saying, how shall we look when we're damned? Can't you just picture the mocking of consequence just like they had mocked the consequences of fire and brimstone by casting the righteous into their own lake of fire and brimstone. Completely oblivious. There is no piper to pay. Remember Zeezrom earlier. Deny the existence of a supreme being. Remember Nehor's universalism. We'll all make it. There's nothing to worry about. There is no damnation. There is no lake of fire and brimstone. 22. Many such things they say. All manner of things. They mock them for many days. No food, no water. They hunger, they thirst. They take their clothes so they're naked. They bound them with strong cords. They're confined in prison. Powerful metaphors there. They are doing to Alma and Amulek physically exactly what they have done to themselves spiritually for years. Hunger, no bread of life. Thirsty, no living water. Naked, uncovered by the clothing atonement of Jesus Christ. Bound, the chains of death and the cords of hell. Imprisoned, captive to your own sins. There's so many powerful parallelisms in this chapter. Verse 23, for many days they suffer. And 24, again they come, smite them again, Throw another if in their face. There's a lot of ifs in this chapter. Well, if this, if that, same thing happens through the crucifixion of Christ, a lot of ifs there. Deliver yourselves from these bands. Then we'll believe. That's so interesting. Then you'll believe? By then it's not belief. It's an adulterous generation that wants a sign, right? Then you'll believe. No, then it will be too late for you to believe at all. It will be obvious. As Elder Maxwell once said, it won't mean much to bend the knee before Christ when you are no longer in a position to stand. Faith is our choice to kneel before circumstance brings us to our knees. It's removing our pride before we're stripped of it. 25, they all come, they all smite them, first to the last. And it's only after the last offense, the final infraction, that the power of God comes upon Alma and Amulek. They rise, they stand upon their feet. And these two incredible men who have been restraining themselves for many days, who have been biting their tongue, finally loose them. And Alma says, how long shall we suffer these great afflictions, O Lord? O Lord, give us strength according to our faith, which is in Christ, even unto deliverance. He didn't ask specifically how it was to happen, but he placed his faith in God's will and God's power and asked for the strength to function within it. As a result, they broke the cords with which they were bound. They were never the ones truly bound in them to begin with. And when the people saw it, they fled. The fear of destruction had finally come upon them. Oh, then you'll believe that the Lord will destroy you, this people? I guess they're living up to their word. They are believing now that destruction is imminent. 27, so great was their fear. They fell to the earth. They didn't even get to the outer door of the prison. The earth shook mightily. The walls rent in twain similar to the veil of the temple being rent in twain when Jesus was crucified. They fell to the earth, the chief judge, lawyers, priests, teachers, everyone who had smitten Alma and Amulek were now smitten themselves, slain by the fall of the prison. Now you want to talk about poetic justice and interesting ironies of reversals here. It was Alma and Amulek who had been bound, and yet the bonds fell off. And those that had been without bonds before them ended up showing that they had been bound by the chains of hell all along. It was Alma and Amulek who were imprisoned, not supposed to get out. And yet in verse 28, Alma and Amulek are the only two people that come out unscathed. Well, they were incredibly hurt by the beating that they had taken all of these days, but unhurt by the destruction of the prison itself. The Lord granted unto them power according to their faith, just like they had asked, their faith which was in Christ. They came forth out of the prison, they were loosed from their bands, the prison had fallen to the earth, every soul within the walls, save it were Alma and Amulek were slain. Do you sense the irony there? The prison was meant to contain Alma and Amulek, but they were the only ones that came out free. The people who had gone in free to the prison, thinking that they were not in prison there at all, ended up being destroyed within that prison as it came down. There's something here almost asking us, who was it that was really imprisoned all along? There's a fascinating story in Acts chapter 16, when Paul and his companion Silas are in prison. Well, physically anyway. But there they are praising God, singing hymns that night, and there is an earthquake, and the prison walls come a-tumbling down. Now, you want a chance for an easy jailbreak? Well, destroy the whole prison, right? Well, the guard in charge, knowing that the penalty for escaped prisoners for a jailer in charge of them would have been death, he pulls out his sword, and he's ready to fall upon it. But through the cloud of dust, Paul's voice is heard, and he calls out to his former jailer, do thyself no harm for we are all here. It's Like don't, don't kill yourself. You're not going to have to be held responsible. We haven't left. And you can picture this jailer going, are you crazy? You're the dumbest inmates I've ever heard. You want to talk about an easy way to get out. The walls just fell. Escape. And yet you could picture Paul saying to him, we've never been the ones that were imprisoned. It was you That was on the wrong side of the bars. We know the truth and the truth has set us free. We'd like to set you free. And so in this beautiful reversal, it's the prisoners who then teach the jailer about what real freedom consists of. And then all are delivered together as that jailer and his whole house are baptized by Paul. You see the same poetic irony here, where the free are captivated and the captives go free. It's so dramatic, a deliverance, that all the people hear the great noise in 29. They come running to see what happened, what's going on. They see Alma and Amulek coming forth out of the prison. What a scene this would be. Hungry, thirsty, naked, beaten, bloodied, bruised, but emerging from the rubble like a pair of lions, it says. They fled like a goat fleeth with her young from two lions. And that's exactly who Alma and Amulek were. Lions themselves after the image of the lion of the tribe of Judah, Jesus Christ. Now, the story still doesn't stop there. Forget chapter headings. They just make us think that the story has come to an end. Chapter 15, verse 1, as soon as that happens, Alma and Amulek are commanded to depart out of that city, and they departed. Notice this is the first time they really leave for good, and it didn't come upon the commandment of the leaders of the city. It came only at the commandment of God. Oh, I'm not going to leave because you're making me. I'll only leave once God tells me my work is done, but it is done. There is no righteous person left. They've either been cast out or consumed in the fire, but delivered from the wickedness of Ammonihah either way. Alma and Amulek end up going to the land of Sidon. And there they find all the people who had departed out of the land of Ammonihah, who had been cast out and stoned because they believed in the words of Alma. Interesting that their preliminary persecution actually saved them from a worser fate it was because they were cast out, because they had men sent to stone them, that they were saved from the flames. But here in verse two, they are told about their wives and children who were not. Interesting that in the same breath, Alma and Amulet could talk about all that had happened to their wives and children, and also concerning themselves and their power of deliverance. Obviously, they're not trying to rub salt into these painful wounds, because they shared the pain themselves. But to talk about deliverance, both deliverance from, which was their own experience, and deliverance in, which was the experience of those martyrs. By the way, this is an interesting parallel to the people of Limhi. Remember the ones that had abandoned their wives and children? but then came to their senses and turned around and ran back in hopes of saving them and ended up being saved by them instead. Well, once again, we see an example of wicked Nephites being more heartless towards women and children than the Lamanites were. We also see the first half of another parallel we'll see later with the mass martyrdom of women and children in Ammonihah compared to the mass martyrdom of men among the anti Nephi Lehis. I remember once in a women in the scriptures class that I was teaching, just letting the students know that if you have eyes to see, you will almost always find a female parallel, a female equivalent of the male stories that seem to take up so much space in scripture. The daughters of Oneida are the female equivalent of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Esther is the female equivalent of Joseph in Egypt. Well, these women of Ammonihah are the female equivalent of the men of the anti-Nephi-Lehi's. Sister saints and sister sufferers teaching all of us lessons about coming unto Christ. Now, in one of the most beautiful details in this story, among this group of survivors is one whose name we recognize. Zeezrom is among them. We saw his turn, his change of heart back in chapter 14, and as he's trying to stem the tide that he began, he's swept away by it, but he stays with these people. In verse 3, he lays sick at Sidon with a burning fever, caused by the great tribulations of his mind on account of his wickedness. He supposed that Alma and Amulek were no more. He had every good reason to suppose that. He supposed they'd been slain because of his iniquity. This is my fault, his great sin, his many other sins, all of this harrowed up his mind until it became exceedingly sore, having no deliverance. Therefore, he began to be scorched with a burning heat. There's a lot of fire imagery in this story. The fire and brimstone that they'd talked about, the women and children being cast into the flames. Now it's Zeezrom, sick with a burning fever, scorched with a burning heat. Now, you remember what Alma had said to him earlier that the wicked would want to call the mountains down upon them to keep them from the all-seeing eye of the God whom they had offended. And yet it can't be that way. They have to stand before God and the remorse and regret that they feel, he said, would be within them as a lake of fire and brimstone. That's what he was getting at. This is exactly what Zeezrom is feeling, a preview of that kind of feeling, but it's the remorse of a broken heart and a contrite spirit, which then brings the mercy of God. In verse four, when he hears that Alma and Amulek are in the land of Sidon, his heart begins to take courage. Now for me, against people I had offended, fought against, probably caused their death, I would be scared to death to face them. But he, Zeezrom, it's courage. He sends a message to them immediately, desiring them to come unto him, such evidence of godly sorrow, and a changed heart. I will face the people I have offended. I will face up for my failings. This is the leper going to Jesus in spite of the multitude, which would be the last thing a leper would want to face. This is the woman with the issue of blood, confessing that it was she who had touched the hem of the Savior's garment. This is a guilty Zeezrom having the courage to want Alma and Amulek to come to him so he can face them himself. Well, verse 5, they do come. They come immediately, not to rub it in, not to fight fire with fire, not to blame or to castigate, but to come and lift and love. They find him on his sickbed. He's low with a burning fever, his mind exceedingly sore because of his iniquities, but he stretches forth his hands and beseeches them, heal me. What follows then is an echo of an earlier conversation. You remember the one that kept going back and forth, back and forth with Zeezrom and Amulek? Zeezrom asking questions and Amulek responding, well, this time it's Alma asking the questions and Zeezrom responding. Alma takes him by the hand and asks, Believest thou in the power of Christ unto salvation? Earlier, you'd asked about salvation, if we could be saved in our sins. You'd asked about God versus a son of God. Well, do you now believe in the power of Christ, the son of God, unto salvation from your sins? Zeezrom answered, yes, I believe all the words thou hast taught, including the ones I denied, including the ones I resisted, include the ones I tried to twist. I believe them all. So Alma responds with this promise. If thou believest in the redemption of Christ, thou canst be healed. Zeezrom took that as a question and responded in the affirmative. Yea, I believe according to thy words. So Alma cries unto the Lord. He knows the power resides in him, not within himself. And so he cries to the Lord and says, O Lord our God, have mercy on this man. The same mercy you had on me. Heal him according to his faith, which is in Christ. The same way you healed me after two days and two nights in that coma. His faith is like unto mine. Please respond to it as you responded to mine. As a result, verse 11, Zeezrom leaps upon his feet and begins to walk. This is no gradual change. This is like Alma said, I waded through my repentance, but then God snatched me in a moment of great forgiveness. The same thing is happening to Zeezrom. This was done to the great astonishment of all the people. And the knowledge of all this went forth throughout all the land of Sidon. Alma didn't just leave him healed. He wanted to leave him whole. And so recognizing this faith and assisting in this repentance, verse 12, Alma baptizes Zeezrom unto the Lord. And Zeezrom from that time forth, began to preach unto the people. We all know that. The best missionaries are recent converts, right? They are speaking out of their own changed hearts. Alma the Younger himself is a great example. Amulek, another. Now Zeezrom, this companionship just turned into a trio. 13, wanting to make sure that that could continue to overcome the potential short shelf life of faith. Verse 13, Alma establishes a church in the land of Sidon, Consecrates priests and teachers in the land so that their work could continue to baptize unto the Lord whosoever were desirous to be baptized. And it was many. They flocked in from all the region round about Sidon and were baptized. It's amazing that success in Sidon came as a result of the quote unquote failure in Ammonihah and much of that as a result of two converts, Amulek and Zeezrom sound a little like Abinadi's so-called failed mission, when in reality, that was the conversion of one Alma the Elder, and then a whole lot of followers of the Waters of Mormon. Sadly, again, we see a juxtaposition of the softened hearts versus the hardened hearts. The church in Sidon, 13 and 14, versus the wickedness in Ammonihah, 15. Still hard-hearted, still stiff-necked, still not repenting of their sins, still chalking up Alma and Amulek's power to the devil, still professing Nehor's doctrine, still not believing in the repentance of their sins. Why should we? There's no lake and fire in Brinstone. We're all saved. It's just about popularity and prosperity in this life, since the next life is freely guaranteed. Now, 16, you see a beautiful detail about Amulek that he had forsaken all his gold and silver and precious things. And there was a lot of that to forsake, right? He said he had obtained much riches by the hand of his industry, but he left it all. He left it for the word of God. Just like so many of his neighbors had left their lives for the word of God. Not only had Amulek left his riches, though, he also was rejected by those who were once his friends and also by his father and his kindred. He seemed to be the one to stand up and stand out, and he ended up standing alone in that. He lost everything because he was willing to gain everything. This is like Father Lehi leaving all his previous life and livelihood in Jerusalem. To find a promised land that he'd not yet seen, but had been promised. With nothing left to his name, verse 18 then makes sense. Alma, having seen all these things, took Amulek and came over to the land of Zarahemla and took him to his own house. He administered unto him in his tribulations and strengthened him in the Lord. One more poetic parallel. How did their relationship begin? When a famished Alma asked for shelter and food for a humble servant of God. And it was Amulek who brought him into his home and administered unto him. Now in this sweet role reversal, it is Alma welcoming Amulek into his home, feeding him, taking care of him, administering to him, strengthening him, and doing it all in the Lord. I wonder if Amulek could have ever known at that first reunion the person you are helping today will someday end up helping you. That the person you save will become your savior of sorts. You know, my grandma was raised by inactive parents, and she married a man who had a testimony of the gospel at the time. She wasn't sure if she did, and Grandpa would say, "Well, you just need to read the Book of Mormon." If she was like, "Why? I don't want to." And he, she, and he said, well, fine, then I'll read it to you. This was stubborn meets stubborn. It's still in the genes. Well, he'd come home from work and grandma would, was loath to admit it, but she would say, you know, I looked forward to him coming home. He was a school teacher. And just every time he'd come home from school, I knew he was going to read the Book of Mormon to me. I had to keep a poker face like, oh, fine, he's going to read the scripture again. But I loved it. And it changed her. Well, eventually World War II changed him and he left the family and left the church and and left it all. But he had left his ex-wife with a rock-solid testimony of the gospel, and she raised her children on it. My mom, my aunt, my uncle. Eventually, that uncle, firm in his own testimony of Jesus Christ, reached out to a father that he had never really known, and thus began a process, a long year-after-year process of coaxing him back into the family, as much as he was able, and coaxing him back into the faith. Grandpa eventually did return into full fellowship and full faith in the restored gospel of Jesus Christ. But I love the full circle within my own family, that he planted seeds in my grandma, who watered them in her son, who then replanted them in his father, him saving others, eventually ended up with being saved himself. Plant seeds, my friends. You never know if you'll end up being the recipient of the fruit that they eventually bear. I also want to say one other thing about verse 18, about taking someone in and ministering to them, especially someone who has lost so much sacrifice to such an extent for the gospel of Jesus Christ. We lifelong members, how do we treat new converts? Do we welcome them into our home, recognizing what they've lost? I don't know if that ever crosses our mind. We just realize all that they've gained. Stuff that we perhaps have taken for granted. And it's like, wow, you have all this amazing stuff now that you're a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. All this truth and light and knowledge, wonderful. We, from our perspective, we see all they've gained. They do too. It's one of the reasons they came but what they probably feel even more intensely are some of the things that they've lost, which almost always includes friends and family. I'm not saying lost like you can't be with them anymore, but so often there's a sense within that family of that this new Latter-day Saint convert has abandoned us, has rejected us, or the way that we've raised them, or the way that we've grown up together. Often there is friction in a family. Jesus warned about that. Perhaps it's inescapable. But those of us on this side, are we doing anything to strengthen them in the Lord? Are we taking them into our own house and helping them see that they still have a family? Hold the one that you came from and bring in the one that you're now coming into. I actually had a mission companion. Elder Josephat was his name. Born and raised on one of the islands of the Philippines and saw two Latter-day Saint missionaries, just walking along the street in his village. He felt something, something overpowering, unmistakable, but inexplicable. He ended up just bawling, crying and going home. Next day, he woke up and said, I got to find those two Americans. And he searched through his village until he found them. They kind of stick out, so it probably wasn't too hard. But he asked them, why do I feel what I feel when I just see you? We haven't even, they hadn't even talked yet. That's how sensitive this amazing boy was to the spirit of God. Well, the missionaries kind of looked at each other and said, wow, um, golden investigator. Here's the message. So much like Amulek, right? I've been prepared for you. Teach me. And they did. And he joined the church. Only member in his family, though. And taking these two missionaries almost like new brothers, he went out with them almost every day to share the gospel that had just changed his life. Until his family said, it's us or the Mormons. Make your choice. And he said, this is going to be hard because I love you so much. But I guess I'll have to leave. He went to the missionaries and said, um, can I live with you? And they're like, oh, actually, no, you're not, we, I'm sorry, that, that's, yeah, that's not how it works. We can't. And he said, that's OK, I'll find something else. He had an uncle that lived in San Diego, the United States. And so he somehow got enough money to get a ticket and moved to San Diego. And what did he do there? Went on splits with the missionaries like every single day until his uncle gave him the same ultimatum that his parents had. It's us or the Latter-day Saints. And again, he sacrificed family for faith. He ended up getting a bus pass and said, I'll go north. I don't know what's north. I don't know anyone else in the United States, but I'm sure there's something out there. He got on in San Diego, got off the bus in Portland, Oregon, must have liked the trees. He went to the bus station manager and said, do the Mormons have anything here? And the manager was like, what are you talking about? So, the Mormons, the Latter-day Saints, do they have any, I don't know, buildings? Are, are there Mormons in Oregon? He said, well, there's like a big temple thing down by the freeway. How do I get there? So he got another bus pass to get there. I love hearing Elder Josephat tell his story. He said, I'm standing in the middle of the parking lot in the Portland, Oregon temple, luggage in hand, just waiting." not knowing a soul. And the first Latter-day Saint couple that walked out of the temple, he just went up to him and said, excuse me, are you guys LDS? And well, yeah, we just, and he said, can I live with you? And this husband and wife, totally taken aback by this Filipino young man, ended up saying, sure, get in the minivan. And they brought him home. And he lived with that family. They took him to their own house. They administered to him in his tribulations. They strengthened him in the Lord. The whole ward chipped in so that he could go on a mission because he wanted to serve so badly. And he became one of my companions. What an honor. A lifelong member to be teamed with an Amulek who had given up all. Elder Josephat was fearless in inviting people to come into Christ. He's like, I'm only asking them to get baptized. I'm not asking them to move in. I mean, I've done that before, and it worked too, but it's amazing what people will give and what people will receive in the process. One last thing in this chapter in this verse 17, that church that Alma established inside him it was a great check. I love that. The people were checked as to the pride of their hearts. And as a result, they began to humble themselves before God. You see, pride is like a cancer that just keeps growing and spreading. It is the universal sin after all, right? It can feed off of anything, pride from above, pride from below. This is a parasite that doesn't care what its host organism is. And it will grow and grow and grow unless checked. Checked by truth checked by consequence, checked by light and love, checked by the church that tries to help develop all of these things within us. And once pride is checked, then humility can begin to grow. You have to stop the growth, the natural, natural man growth of one before the more effort intensive growth of the other can begin. That's exactly what the church is for, to help assemble people together, to worship God before the altar, to watch, to pray continually that they might be delivered from Satan and from death and from destruction. Well, we only have one last chapter to study this week, and that's Alma chapter 16. We can do it briefly here. In verse one, it says there was peace in the land of Nephi. It's kind of the dust has settled after all that we've seen in Ammonihah. It's the fifth day of the second month. And all that we saw at the end of chapter 15 with the church in Sidon, that was the end of the 10th year. So I don't know how long they spent in Sidon before the year ended, but there has been at least a month and a half or so since the end of chapter 15 and however many months it took before that. So there has been at least... I don't know, several months, a considerable amount of time with nothing bad happening in Ammonihah. Peace in all the land. No wars, no contentions, nothing. But now there is a cry of war heard throughout the land. The Lamanites are in the borders, it says in verse two. Guess where in the borders? Eh, the city of Ammonihah, where they began to slay the people and destroy the city. In fact, it all happened so fast Cries of war had barely been heard before they were silenced again. Verse three, before the Nephites could raise a sufficient army to drive them out of the land, they had destroyed the people who were in the city of Ammonihah and taken some captives from some cities round about that. That's how fast Ammonihah was destroyed. Remember what they said at the very beginning when they met Alma? I don't care if you would threaten us that our city could be destroyed in one day, we're still not going to repent. We're not afraid of impossible consequences. Well, those impossible consequences, it's exactly what happened. The consequence came before they could be spared it. Remember, this is the day of your repentance. Use it well. And because they did not use the time that was prolonged for them, eventually there was no time when the consequence finally came. Again, the issue of time without those months passing, however long it was, I wonder if that was just enough time for Ammonihah to settle back into their sinfulness. See, we've martyred all the righteous, we've cast out the ones that believed, Alma and Amulek are gone, and there's no piper to pay. The order, the faith, the profession of Nehor must have been right all along but it wasn't. And in one day, just as prophesied, it was destroyed. That's at least the moral that Mormon pulls out of this in verse nine. The people of Ammonihah were destroyed. Every living soul of the Ammonihahites was destroyed. Their great city, which they said God could not destroy because of its greatness. Behold, in one day, it was left desolate. One day. Verse 11 the Nephites, the ones that hadn't had time to go and defend them. They heaped up their dead bodies upon the face of the earth, covered it with a shallow covering. That's all they could do for such a mass grave. And so great was the scent thereof. This is kind of morbid. This is a little disgusting, but bear with me. So great was the scent thereof. All this decaying flesh that the people did not go in to possess the land of Ammonihah for many years. What did they dub it from that moment forward? It was called desolation of Nehor's. The ones that say there's no consequence? Well, here is a monument to the consequence of sin. Here is a massive reminder that there is no prosperity in the grave. These ones don't even get a headstone. Isn't that what Nehor was all about? I want my name to live on. In fact, remember how Nihor died? An ignominious death. Ignom, non, N-O-M in ignominious is the root for name. An unnamed death, a death that robs you of any name worth holding. Popularity and pride and prosperity. No, this is an ignominious death on a massive scale. And that scent That is the stench of selfishness, and it lingers long. Only repentance can clear the air. Now, there's one other detail that I skipped over in hunting for Mormon's message. Remember, we saw at the end of verse three that some others were taken captive into the wilderness. Not the wicked of Ammonihah. They were all destroyed. Every living soul we saw. But these are people that just were kind of caught up in it, but weren't as guilty as the others were. That often seems to be the case in our situations as well. Not as guilty as others, but consequence seems to bleed out among other people, and they do affect others. Remember, Zeezrom learned that the hard way. But the Nephites in verse four that weren't fast enough to deliver Ammonihah, the only ones that could have done that were the people of Ammonihah themselves, and they had all the time in the world to do that earlier. Well, these Nephites are desirous to obtain those who have been carried away captive into the wilderness. Their leader is a man named Zoram. He and his sons, notice what they do in verse five, fascinating military strategy. Knowing that Alma was high priest over the church and having heard that he had the spirit of prophecy, therefore they went unto him and desired of him to know whether the Lord would that they should go into the wilderness in search of their brethren who'd been taken captive by the Lamanites. So they go to Alma and ask him. And in verse six, Alma inquires of the Lord concerning the matter. This is one of the best examples of military intelligence I've ever heard. Who needs reconnaissance when you have revelation? Who needs a spy when you have a seer? Now we're gonna see in a moment that there is need for both boots on the ground and eyes up above. But I love that this is how Zoram begins things. Let's get help from the prophet. If we are seeking people who have strayed, If we're looking for people who have wandered or been taken captive through their own fault or no fault of their own, how do we do that? How can we find them? How can we reach them? Well, let's trust the words of living prophets. They will help show the way. And so they did. The Lord's word to Alma is incredibly specific. The Lamanites will cross the river Sidon in the south, beyond the borders by the land Manti. That's where you'll meet them, beyond the east, and the Lord will deliver them into your hands. That's exactly what they did and exactly what happened. And in verse 8, not a single soul of them was lost that were taken captive. They're brought home by their brethren to possess their own lands. You want success in these missionary efforts? You want success in these reactivation efforts? Then turn to the prophets, seek the guidance of God, act quickly, be diligent. Again, he didn't just turn to the prophet and say, hey, will you pray about this, that the people eventually find their way home? It's like, no, we're gonna go out and rescue them. We're gonna find them. I just don't know the best way to go about doing it. I've got faith and I'm willing to work. What an amazing combination. And not a single soul was lost as a result. Jump ahead to verse 12. We're back to peace. Three more years and there's continual peace. It's so interesting because back in verse one, There hasn't been war or contention for a long time. And as soon as this quick battle is over, there's back to peace. It's like the city of Ammonihah is a total anomaly. You got a long stretch with no war. All of a sudden there's this blip on the radar. And what's it for? Consequence of sin. As prophesied. The day of reckoning. Because the day of repentance was never used as offered. This definitely does not seem like Lamanites going about business as usual, fighting Nephites. It's not peace, but hmm, let's go take that city. And they did. And then it was back to peace as before. So interesting. What do Alma and Amulek do during those years of peace? Verse 13, they go forth preaching repentance. As always. Where? They preach it to the people in their temples and in their sanctuaries and in their synagogues all of them are places of worship. And that's one of the most important acts of worship we could possibly engage in, to repent. But more specifically, to cry repentance in the temple, a place of sacrifice. To cry repentance in the sanctuary, a place of service. To cry repentance in the synagogue, a place of study. I wonder, in our sacrifices, in our service, in our study, is there still room to repent? Are there places where we could at least purify our motives and why we're doing what we're doing? If those are the where's of their repentance, verse 14, we'll see the whos and the whens. As many as would hear their words, unto them they did impart the word of God without any respect of persons, continually. So who? Everyone, no respective persons. When? always, continually. Where? Everywhere. Every temple, sanctuary, synagogue, you name it. So in 15, thus did Alma and Amulet go forth and many more who had been chosen for the work. The order that Alma talked about in 13 is expanding as they speak. They've been chosen for the work, to preach the word throughout all the land. That's everywhere again. The establishment of the church became general throughout the land in all the region round about among all the people of the Nephites. There's a reiteration of the where and now a reiteration of the who. 16, there was no inequality among them. The Lord did pour out his spirit on all the face of the land to prepare the minds of the children of men or to prepare their hearts to receive the word which should be taught among them at the time of his coming. That's exactly what Alma prayed for back in Alma chapter 13. Prepared minds, prepared hearts. Isn't that the definition of the spirit of revelation from D&C 8? But why prepare them? So that the coming of Christ does not catch them unprepared. It's priesthood preview, remember? 17, that they might not be hardened against the word lowercase as in scripture, or capital as in Jesus himself, that they might not be unbelieving and go on to destruction, but that they might receive the word with joy and as a branch be grafted into the true vine that they might enter into the rest of the Lord their God. Again, that beautiful phrase, just come home and rest. Amulek got to. Zeezrom got to the righteous survivors of Ammonihah got to once they settled into the church inside them. I love it. This branch is grafted in. Outsiders are now insiders. There's no inequality among them. No haves and have-nots. No high or low. No division. Again, with all that this world is going through right now, what a beautiful thing to work towards. No inequality among us. No wonder they did it everywhere, all the time, to anyone that they could meet. It reminds me of one of my favorite statements from the great John Wesley, who said, do all the good you can, by all the means you can, in all the ways you can, in all the places you can, in all the times you can, to all the people you can, as long as ever you can use yourself up, brothers and sisters. Waste and wear out your life, is the way Joseph Smith would put it. Bring inequality to an end. And the best way to do that is to prepare people's minds and hearts to receive Jesus. You see, it's sin that separates us. It's pride that needs to be checked before we can become one. In verse 18, the priests get that. That's why they go forth among the people and preach against lying and deceivings and envyings and strifes and malice and revilings and stealing and robbing and plundering and murdering and adultery and all these things. Why? Because those things divide us. They separate us. They separate us from God, but they separate us from each other. All of those things destroy both the first and second great commandments. And if they're gone, then our divisions are gone. Our inequality is gone. The priests not only teach against in verse 18, they preach of in 19. They hold forth things which must shortly come, namely the coming of the Son of God, his sufferings and death. That's his atonement that it's all about and the resurrection of the dead. His sufferings, there's Gethsemane. His death, there's Calvary. His resurrection, there's the empty tomb. All of that is included in the great atonement of Jesus Christ. If non-Latter-day Saint Christians seem to neglect Gethsemane, I've seen sometimes us in the church seem to neglect Calvary. And yet over and over in the Book of Mormon, the phrase his sufferings and death come together. It's both Gethsemane and Calvary and Garden Tomb That's the atonement of Christ. That's what makes us one. What he experienced in all three of those places. With all that work of preparation, all of that holding forth, verse 20, many people start inquiring about the coming of Christ. We're getting closer, right? Would to God that it might be in my day with Alma's beautiful sense of impatience. You can see that the other people are getting beautifully impatient as well. And they're wondering, where will it be? We can't know the when, but can we know the where? Might we be able to see it? And they are taught that he would appear unto them after his resurrection. This the people did hear with great joy and gladness. Of course they did. We then conclude in 21. Now, after the church had been established throughout all the land, having got the victory over the devil. I love that. At the end of a chapter consisting largely of war, we see the victory that really matters. The church won the victory over the devil. Amulek stands as an example of that. Zeezrom stands as an example of that. Alma the Younger himself, who started this mission, stands as an example of that compared to his earlier life. The whole thriving church in the land of Sidon, it seems like everywhere you look, you see beautiful examples of that victory. How did it come? Finish the verse. The word of God was preached in its purity in all the land. That's the order of God. That's how we fill the space God has given us between paradise lost and paradise regained. It's filled with his word, which the softened heart receives in great, great portions. The Lord poured out his blessings upon the people. And thus ended the 14th year of the reign of the judges. Sounds a little redundant to me. The word is preached and the Lord poured out his blessings. In my mind, that's one and the same. God's word is God's blessing. And it has been a blessing for me to study it today with you. May it bring us into God's order may it soften our heart, may it check our pride, may it strengthen us through our sufferings, and may it bring us the victory. I pray that it will do all of those things for each of us. And I thank you for the time that you spend allowing just that to happen. I pray that I have been able to preach it in its purity today. And I thank you for the privilege of letting me do so. Keep feasting on this magnificent Word of God. It's what prepares us for the rest that will come from God and the rest that we'll find in God.